The Bazaar is an explicit radio program, listener discretion is advised. Welcome! Got something that might interest you. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome back to the show. I have a very special guest, AJ Benza. He's a writer, journalist, TV host. He's probably seen it all and I suppose tonight's episode, we could call it Fear is a Bitch, but he's also host <laughs> of Fame is a Bitch. AJ, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? How are you? Excellent. Fine things. And I, I know you're driving to work at the minute and you're squeezing in this. You're an absolute legend. And I suppose for those... <laughs> In the audience who might know who you are fully, would you like to give a little self-summary, see what you can do with that? Sure. sure. Uh, I, I started my career about 30 years ago as a sports writer in New York for a couple of different newspapers. But then in the uh, 1990, I fell into becoming a gossip columnist for, the, for New York Newsday, which is a big newspaper in, in, in New York. And then that turned into a gossip reporting job at the New York Daily News. And that's when I really started to blow up, so to speak, because there was a huge tabloid war, the New York Post against the New York Daily News. And in, in New York City, uh, when you say tabloid war, it really was. I mean, there was a bunch of reporters going after the same stories in the same city. We all had the same sources. Uh, and, you know, it was a proving ground every night to go out after work, hit the nightclubs, hit the restaurants, find people, find sources. At the same time, you're getting drunk, you're probably getting high, you're chasing girls, and you have to produce the next day in the newspaper. And this went on for years. And that's really how I began my career. That's how people started to know who I am. And that led to television, and that led to movies and book deals and all that stuff. And now the podcast. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose that's how I really got turned on to you myself. I actually originally heard you on Joey Diaz's show and I was right. laughing head over heels and I, I started Good. listening to Fame as a Bitch and I went through all the back catalogue and fascinating. I, as, I, as I mentioned in the messages, you're probably one of the only people who I suppose has the courage to even speak his mind these days. Do you find there's much pushback uh, from, we'd say, the way you conduct yourself on Fame as a Bitch? No, you know, the good, news, the good news is, you know, when you write for a newspaper like the Daily News, everything I wrote had to be vetted by not only my immediate editor, but then the, the desk editors, many of whom won Pulitzer Prizes. Then it went to two or three lawyers at the top of the Daily News before it ever went to print. So there were a lot of people it had to go through before it was read. The world has changed since then, obviously. I wrote my column before social media was a thing, before Google was a thing. Now, everybody is talking out of both sides of their mouth. Everybody has a story. Everybody thinks they're a journalist. So what I like about the podcast is I don't have to listen to anybody else. No one gets to temper me, make my, make my, my speech shorter, or uh, make, it, make it more uh, reader uh, listener-friendly. I'm just able to be myself, which is all anybody really wants to be. And I've taken criticism and taken direction for a long time. I still do when somebody's well-meaning, but I like the podcast uh, more than anything. It's the closest way, it's the closest thing I've ever had to, that feels like when I had the power of my newspaper column. And when I had all of New York City reading me, 
that was a big high. Now, as evidenced by a guy like you calling me from across the world, it's a different kind of power. It's very, I love it. But I just, when I'm speaking on my show, I never think about what people in Australia think or Ireland or, you know, Spain. It's very, I have people in Africa who let me know. So sometimes I wonder, like, am I getting, am I saying things that are too finite that only appeal to people who know, you know, I'm a kid that was raised in Brooklyn, Long Island, New York, and then Manhattan. Now I'm in California, but I don't know how much, how much of that you guys know across the ocean. You know, there are a lot of things go over your head when I'm speaking about different things. Mm, well, for me personally, I did spend a summer in New York working away ah. the old blue collar work and it was absolutely great fun. Uh -huh. So I do see where you're coming from with regards to that, but I suppose you've seen New York life, which was full of celebrity, and now you're in the right. LA region. So you've probably seen like the length and breadth of everything but you're there's a lot to unpack there what you're saying i mean you were coming up in the age pre-social media and you're saying you had the whole of new york listening how do you find now given that you've set up the podcast and i suppose everyone is a journalist do you find it harder to get good leads and stories yeah. or is it easier i don't i don't like it i i it's there's nothing i can do about it it's the way the world is uh, social media has made everybody an expert. It's made, I mean, look, it doesn't only affect writers like myself or, or broadcasters like myself, it affects doctors. There are people who go to Wikipedia before they go to their doctor and they tell the doctor what they're suffering from. Yeah. It happens in every, in every, uh, every profession. But, you know, since my life has largely been geared after news, the things that break, whatever the hot story is, I want to. I want to have the information, and I've always been that guy that has the information and wants to tell you the story first. The only way I can separate myself from all these people who who think they have an angle and think they know is to is to personalize it and make me a part of the story. And it, it, I know that that's a, a weird way to think. It's very narcissistic. It can be. Uh, it's a little bit weird for somebody to think, "Oh, I can be a part of every story." Not every story, but I think that when you per when I can personalize a story, and if I'm talking about John Gotti, let's say, and I can talk about me working for him in the 80s, or if I'm talking about Stallone and me segueing into working with him on a movie, Mickey Rourke, you name it. Uh, and, and all these stories, in the last 20 years, things started to happen where I realized that, you know, I've lived a hell of a life. I can, I'm not saying it's, it's a, it was a wonderful you know, like enviable life, but I've lived the kind of life that I tend to know so many things of, about people who are murdered, you know, married. Uh, there's just not many big stories that get by me where I can't attach, attach it from a personal standpoint. Yeah. I think that's the way I get to beat all these average people who think they know and they really don't. Mm. Yeah, no, because you made a great point there uh, on your recent episode on Wednesday where you were reading one of the messages from someone and it was a giant long conspiracy right. theory and oh, that was cracking me up, but <laughs> I'd say uh, must I, get, no, yeah, I, must be I, I like, I mean, I, yeah, people send me all sorts of stuff and they're, they're doing it now more than ever. And this conspiracy theory world we live in, it just enhances people's desire to go down these rabbit holes. And I go down them too because... Oftentimes, you'll find some answers down there. Oh, you'll give alternative theories to, to stories. So it's all, it's all worth it because you do come out of the hole with some information. But I think for purposes like 
Kid Spade or Anthony Bourdain and why they died, I don't think you need to go that deep. Anthony Bourdain is mentioned in thousand times that he's uh, very, very depressed and he's suicidal. And when it happens and you tie it into his girlfriend being with another guy in Rome and the pictures being out of the Internet, uh, you know, missing his daughter, uh, a grueling work schedule. Sure, this is a guy that's depressed enough to kill himself. I don't have to go thinking about Hillary Clinton's henchmen or Harvey Weinstein's killers. Yeah. It seemed pretty cut and dry. Yeah, no, of course. And I suppose that's kind of what I was going to be asking you your opinion on today, really, because you perked my interest a few episodes back and you said you discuss horror and you watch horror movies. So I said, there's there's my angle to get in, as a, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but just with recent events, and we'll say in gossip in general, it's all based around, you know, outing someone, shaming someone, airing yeah. the dirty laundry. What, why do you think people... You know, I suppose the shame aspect. Why do you think gossip and scandal works so well with that? Why does that fear affect people so much? Would you have any after twenty why, plus years? Why, is, why does gossip work? You mean why? Do, yes, why, does, the, why does it work? And why do you think the shaming aspect and witch hunting works so well? I suppose inducing the fear. Well, there's a couple of let me let me go this. I mean, I'll tell you, gossip works because it's one of the oldest things that. Uh, we as a people have practiced. You know, if you want to say that uh, uh, prostitution is the oldest profession, okay. But the second oldest profession is gossip because once somebody found out there was prostitution, they told somebody else about it. <laughs> so, you, you know, I always look at it that way. It's, it's the second oldest profession. And if you think about words like trivia, I mean, I, you know, trivia is from the Italian trivia, which means three streets. Yeah. And in the old days, the, the, the people, and this, this goes for every country, not just Italy. I just don't know the word for trivia in your country, but it just basically means people would converge at the end of three streets and talk about the neighborhood, right. talk about people. Yeah. People like to give information. That's what I loved about the news business. And now with the shaming aspect of it, I think, you know, people, there's a big jealousy contingent in the world. People are very jealous. Never before has there been such a separation of the rich and powerful and the, uh, and the people who, are, who uh, just don't have the money and don't have the means to not compete. There's a big separation. It's getting worse. So I think there's a lot of jealousy. And I think we've never had, well, I know, we've never had a time in this world where people could turn their life around on, on a dime. With all the new inventions and, and the things that we've seen come across the world, anybody can go from nothing to becoming a star. I hate to use that word, but look, it's true. There are people who are, who are nobody. They're just regular people one day. The next, they're stars on a reality show. They've got their own fucking margarita mix or wine or what have you, and they're a brand. Yeah. So because they're able to do that, because there's a dispar disparity between people, I think jealousy is a big factor, and I think that the... Everybody wants to be somebody. No, I don't think many people are comfortable in their own skin. They want to be somebody else. If they can't be you, they're going to take you down. Yeah. I think that's what people are like mainly. Right. And I suppose on the same token of that, that you're saying anyone could come up with the likes of like Roseanne Barr recently, who can lose their career. Well, their second coming, I suppose, on the drop of right. a tweet. What's your opinion on that? Like the rise and fall on like a sixpence, really? It's very dangerous. The world has changed. Uh, People have to think from now on, whatever you put on the internet is forever. Always think that you're being filmed because you pretty much are. And always think whatever you're saying 
is not going into some vacuum. It's being recorded, documented, broadcasted, archived. It's going to be there forever. So people are walking around having to be these kind of robotic, robotic forms of life. But it is a very dangerous time. And I'm not happy about that because I think self-expression and saying things you want to say is a very important way to live. It's just the freedom to say what you want is important. Now, there is freedom of the press, there's freedom of speech, but lately people across the world think they have a right to say anything, and that includes hate speech. And I think what Roseanne got caught up in, it's a combination of her being a comic, and in the last five to ten years, comics have really taken it the hardest. They're not allowed to be comedic anymore. They're always being recorded. And, and, and people just really have a, a, a short fuse. People get soaked in intolerant. You know, everybody preaches tolerance, but yet they're very intolerant when it comes to somebody speaking their mind. It's yeah. a very dangerous time. I mean, I know that what I'm saying now is fine, and I know I may do a show tonight and be fine, but, you know, there, whenever you let those words go, the whole world, like I, I didn't, like, like for instance, the other day I told a quick story at the end of the show about Alec Baldwin attempting suicide. Yes. And I said, I said it really like flippantly because I knew I had this story. I knew no one else had it. No one else ever talked about that. But I wanted to stick it up Alec Baldwin's ass because he's always acting like he's perfect and Trump's unstable. And it just got me pissed off. So I told Alec's suicidal story. Um, I don't know if that's, a, I don't know if that was a great idea. I don't think that's something that I should do more often. I felt weird after it left my mouth. I can't change it. I can't correct it. Even if I take the show down, it's out there. A quarter million people have it, and by another three years, uh, two million people will have it. You know, so anybody that has the, uh, the, the gift of being able to say what we want in a podcast form better be careful because it could all come crumbling down any day. Yeah. And I, I do think about that. I really do. Because I don't have anybody vetting me. And that's yeah. dangerous. It's very dangerous. Yeah. And I suppose, like, it, there seems to almost be, because you do touch on it a lot, there's a revisionist history now with the whole Me Too thing. Because you were saying right. you were coming up in the scene and you might go to clubs and you're taking a bit of drugs or whatever. And it's kind yeah. of, the it's the club. People know what's going on. There's a certain rapport that yeah. people uphold. And, like... The fact now, 30 years later, 25 years later, all these stories are coming out. How does that make you feel as someone who, you know, everyone keep their mouth shut? I know you're obviously a gossip columnist, but you kept some stories close to your chest. Obviously, you mentioned Alec Baldwin, those kind of stories. How do you feel now about, like, the revisionist witch hunt, I suppose you could call it? I don't like it. I think that if anybody really... look, Look, I think there are some legitimate... There are some legitimate stories. There are some girls that have been haunted by their experiences... And as a people, we need to let those people get it off their chest. We need to have them taken care of. We need the people who are responsible to be taken care of. So I do get it, and I do think the movement is very important. When I, when I talk to women, I sat down with Maria Menounos the other day, beautiful host of Entertainment Tonight, all those shows, Access Hollywood. Uh, she said something to me that really rung true. She said, look, you know, we like sex. Women like sex as much as men do. We really, when we show up to a job, we really want to work. You know, not, not, we just, we want to work like you. We want, to, we want to contribute. We want to do things that men do. And when we're treated just like a sex object, it's fucking bothersome. It really sucks. 
So I think the revisionist history of what women are doing now, going back in time, it bothers me. Because if it really bothered you back then, I wish they would have had the nerve and the backbone to bring it up. Mm. But we're always going to hear them say, well, I could have lost my job. I had to feed my family. And I think as much as, as hard as that is to understand, as men, we've got to understand and accept that the deck has been stacked against women for a long time. And we've got to now say, okay, look, let's try to get as close as the even as we can. And a lot of innocent people are going to be swept up in this bullshit, like Morgan Freeman. You know, there are some people that don't belong in that net. Aziz Ansari. I don't even think, I don't even think Louis C.K. belongs in this net. I think what he did masturbating in front of girls is goofy and weird and dumb. I don't think it's the kind of thing that a woman is going to have to run out of a room screaming. Yeah. I think she could have, they could have left the room. They could have told him to go fuck himself and walk out. But they chose to stay there and play a victim. Yeah. I'm, not gonna, I'm, not, I'm not raising my daughter to be a victim. I'm raising her to fight back and open her mouth. And I wish more fathers had done that. And I wish more fathers continue to do it as we move forward. Mm. And what, what would you put that down to then? Is it like a lack of parenting? Because you see different things in like the 50s, the 80s. People are slapping women yeah. on screen. Like That's definitely a cultural thing onto the screen oh yeah so yeah. for you yourself as a parent now like what are you teaching your children to look out for i guess well you know basically you, you, kids learn by example and i have not been the greatest example of the way a man should treat a woman i'll be the first to tell them and i do tell my kids that my kids have heard me yell my kids have heard me say very bad words i'm not proud of it but i'm not gonna lie and act like i'm perfect and i and, they, and I, I treat them perfectly right I, they, they've seen bad shit I, they've got to learn from seeing my bad shit. I learned from my father's bad shit. Um, and I, I, I just hope as we go forward, people have to start to understand, especially men. Listen, you know, when, when, when James Cagney smacked a woman in a movie and smashed a grapefruit in her face and we all laughed, we're, we, we, we cannot go anywhere near back toward that kind of behavior. That's over. We, we, fuck. Women have to learn, like my sisters inherently knew, if a man says or does something stupid or untoward, you tell him, hey, you want me to tell my father and my brothers about this? So you'll, they'll put you six feet under, you piece of shit. Yeah. They've got to learn to be that way. Yeah. They, they can't just be damsels in distress. Fight. Fight back. Yeah. I suppose, would you think there's a softness then to the current youth? Like, they're all clung to their phones. There's no running down the streets, playing ball in the street corner, all that stuff. Do you think there's something... Oh, uh, they're all... They're all... Yes, you're exactly right. They're all... A lot of kids now are pussies. A lot of kids now don't know what it's like to have something I call sweat equity, which means to work hard and get ahead, advance yourself, do things to make yourself better. Most kids get things handed to them. They grow up in Little League sports. I'm a Little League coach. I know what it's like for every kid to get a trophy, no matter how they perform. And I've got to do that because that's what the league does. But as a coach, I tell each kid why he's getting his trophy and what he needs to do better because in a couple of years, in a few years, life gets very unfair. And not everybody gets the promotion. Not everybody gets the corner office with the fucking window. Yeah. Not every girl wins the beauty pageant. You've got to make yourself better. You can't just accept what's handed to you. Yeah. So. It is an awful, it is a bad way we're living. On the other hand, a lot of kids are living now in a very fast-paced world where they're, I can't get my son off the video games. He's he's playing, he's playing, uh, Fortnite. oh my God, <laughs> he's playing Fortnite, he's killing 100 people an hour, yeah. you know, him and his buddy. 
it's it's a different world. So on one hand, they've got this world, this other universe where they're able to be killers and warriors and, you know, they answer to nobody. On the other hand, they've got to toughen up in real life and, and get ready because the world's got teeth and it bites back. And it bites at women harder. Yeah, no, definitely. Because I suppose, I wonder, could you correlate like the clampdown on bullying in schools to, that's actually life lessons. That's real life. That's office life. That's corporate life getting bullied, you know? Are people just getting yeah, too I soft? Think, yeah. I think bullying is essential. I got bullied. It ends up, you, you've got to get to a point where you stop it. But I think m- most of bullying is essential and it's good. It, 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 it doesn't, you, you, there's no use growing up with bubble wrap all around your body. You've got to bump into the sharp edges in life. You've got to feel the fire. You've got to get hurt. That's what tempers you. That's what gets you strong. Walking through a locker room in basketball or football with your buddies making fun of you that's a force. That makes you a stronger person. You can't just separate. You know what I found out recently that I can't believe? There are no more shower, like communal showers in high schools anymore. Seriously. Like they've just eliminated, they've eliminated that. Like you, kids can't shower after practice. That's kids come so. home sweaty as fuck. They don't shower. Yeah. Because what do we all think that suddenly the world's full of creepy people, creepy like, I don't know what we're doing to each other, but we're putting a lot of people in in, in their own pods so nobody can bother them and, and fuck them up. And yeah. the world has become very insular in a lot of way, and that's largely because of what's happening in the, the revolution in Silicon Valley and all the, the, the computer, the, the world of computers. And you know, people don't have to people don't have to um, you know act out. They, they don't have to be with each other. They can be in their own world. And as a result, they don't get that give and take of, of uh, I don't want to call it bullying. I just want to call it social interaction. It can get too far. But when I hear that a kid killed themselves because he was bullied yeah. and I'm expected to get all sad, I, it gets me pissed off because that fucking parent should have left that kid's ass and told him, hey, uh, first of all, let me know who, who your kid is doing it. I'll go to the school and talk. But here's the few lessons you've got to learn because the world is going to do this to you all the time. Yeah. Definitely. You know, no, it is interesting, all right. And I suppose nearly to go back on topic, we've been talking a lot about bullying there. Like you've seen uh-huh. some horrific stuff back in the day. You're talking recently that you've seen like jumpers from buildings and all that kind of crap. Like, what's the most grisly thing you think you've seen back in the day? Well, I I think um, well, I, I've seen I've seen a I've been I've been up close and personal to a plane crash where people are in trees and luggage is all over the place. I've seen I've seen sh- people get shot. Uh, I've had guns to my head twice. Uh, I've seen overdoses. I think the scariest thing I saw was when I was at a nightclub, uh, a largely Italian-run nightclub in New York City, and I was part of the guy, part of the crew. It was a bunch of mafia guys who owned the joint, and they liked me a lot because as a gossip columnist, I could I put their club in the column every week, and I drank for free. It was all great. Yeah. But there was a night where a black guy... A black guy was crossing the street. Now, the club was very nice. People dressed up. Men wore suits. A guy, a black guy across the street was just a typical, a little bit of a crazy New Yorker, a little bit maybe, now we call him mentally ill, but back then we said he was a prick or he was a wise guy. Yeah. He was definitely bipolar or something. He's walking down the street saying something to us across the street, and it looked like he was saying something about a girl. And that's all these guys needed to go across the street, and they beat the shit out of this guy. I I couldn't stop them. There was you know, six mafiosa beating this black guy up. 
and I heard the word, I heard the N word, and I heard things, and I saw things that were disgusting. And I saw the cops come and take the guy away, and nothing happened to the Italian guys. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I saw, I've seen injustices like that. Um, I've seen people take guys in, in, a, in a downstairs room and beat them with phone books mm-hmm. um, because, because their credit card was stolen. So, yeah, I didn't just write gossip and sit at my desk and tell cute stories about, you know, Paris Hilton. I got down and dirty and, and went out every night and, and really saw how certain people live, not just the, the, the pretty side of celebrity. I saw the dirty side of it, too. Mm. And I suppose when you were working for John Gotti, would say, did you know who you were working for at the time? Was it a known decision? Did you want to try out this lifestyle? Uh, my cousin, my mother's side had mafia in it. My mother's side... There's a famous gangster named Happy Mayone. He worked in Murder Incorporated with uh, with uh, Meyer Lansky and all those old guys. And he got the electric chair. He was my mother's uncle. Um, uh, he died in 1948. I never met him, obviously. But so my, I had a cousin who was working for John Gotti. John Gotti was not the Godfather yet. He was a very he was important an important captain in the Gambino crime family. But his name didn't mean anything other than he was a bad, tough dude. Right. Um, and then when I started collecting money for him for a year or so, I met him. I met his son. Uh, he liked me. He was nice to me. He liked that I went to college. He, he knew that wasn't a life for me. But uh, I found out that um, uh, in December of that year, I think 85, when uh, my cousin called me and said, uh, you know, something's going to happen and John's going to go up to the top. Then I said, holy shit, that's how important this guy is? I didn't know. And then I had, then I was on the phone with them at one point when a guy that I brought into the operation uh, stiffed them for $30,000 and I was on the hook for that money. Right. Very, very scary. Right. And that's when you know that you're talking to the most, you know, I mean, that's when they just, it, there's no bones about it. You, you can't eat, you can't sit, your stomach is churning. It's very easy to understand why people jump off a building when they know they're in that position. Yeah. Um, terrifying, terrifying. So how did you manage to get out of that predicament did you run off to la is that why you're not in new york no, no he wanted uh, he wanted me and my cousin to go to colorado and find the guy and get the money yeah. and i this again this is before the internet all i could do was send the guy letters because he wasn't picking his phone up. i wrote letters to his house and the letters came back house abandoned occupant <laughs> you know occupant gone right. and i told that to john and uh lo and behold uh i want to say two or three weeks later that's when the uh, the whole murder happened to Paul Castellano. John became boss, and he had much bigger fish to fry. And my cousin told me, you know, John ate it. We're we're off the hook. It's you know, it's over. Okay. I, I just I got lucky, flat out lucky. And is that when you sort of stopped? Then you were like, nope, I don't want that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I didn't I, I wasn't doing that as a career. I was doing that on the side. I was always uh I was always writing uh, high school sports and college sports. So I, for extra money, I would do that with John. Uh, so I knew, and John always, John had told me, you know, you're a college kid, make your mother proud, use your degree. He would, he knew that wasn't a life for me. And I, I wasn't pretending that it was going to be a life for me. I just had my toe in that side of the world. And then once that whole thing happened, uh, apparently my writing kicked into gear. I got more hours at work, more shifts, and I started making more money. I didn't have to go down that road anymore. Mm. Um but I found myself in that position, you know, 
20 years later in New York when, when I vouched for my roommate, Chico, and I got him a job at the nightclubs that were run by the Genovese family. Yeah. And Chico did the wrong thing. He used somebody's name to collect a drug debt. You can't use a guy's name when it comes to drugs in the mafia. You can't. And they beat the shit out of Chico in front of my eyes, left him in the snow, bloody. And they, you know, and I was next. But because I was a journalist, they generally don't touch journalists because you're more valuable to them. They can use you. They can make you. Yeah, they can use you. And they they did. Yeah, I had to pay back my debt in the form of writing about the nightclub, throwing parties at the nightclub, bringing money into the nightclub. And that's the way they handle that. But when I knew they were after, when I knew they were mad at me, when you go from guys that you see every night that you drink for free, you get pats on the back, a lot of hugs, a lot of talks, free bottle of this, to suddenly they just look at you right through you and don't say a fucking word. It is, again, there's nothing scarier than that. Nothing. Yeah. And um, I, I suppose then, like, were your editors ever copying on, like, geez, you mentioned this place a lot. Like, what's the story there? Are you, yeah. are you all right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they didn't like it. And I, they didn't like it. And they said, at one point, there was a guy named Chuck Zito, who was the, one of the heads of the Hells Angels, pretty famous guy. And uh, there was an article written about me that, inadvertently made Chuck look like he was a rat, like he like he talked about people, and he he didn't do that. But the, the writer who followed me around made a terrible mistake in how she wrote the article. And I knew once Chuck read that, I was going to be beat. I was going to be beat up. Right. And of course, when he read it, I was beat up. They sent for me. I had to go get my beating. I took my beating. Then I told my editors, I've got to write something to make this good. I've got to write that Chuck beat me up. I've got to write about this. And they said, No, we're not going to do it. I said, if you want to see me again in this fucking office next week, you're going to let me write the story. Yeah. And they did. They did. And because my editor started to go out with me, I started to take them to scores, the, the big topless joint that was run by the, gang, the gangsters. I took them to Rayo's, the famous Italian restaurant in Harlem that is, that is 14, uh, 10 or 14 tables that's run by the mob. They started to see the circles I was running in, and it was very apparent. We've got a, a reporter that's in some, that's in some circles with some people that are dangerous. On the other hand, I broke a lot of stories that way too. I was really firmly implanted with some people that knew things that other people don't. So my, my newspaper got, got pretty smart pretty quick and I was able to uh, extricate myself from, from that situation as well. Mm. And I suppose then having written in New York for a number of years, what made you go to LA? Was it just more happening over there at the time of the move? No, they, uh, I uh, I was I had to resign from the Daily News because the new editor who came in, Pete Hamill, who is my idol as a writer, I love his writing. He came on board. He didn't like gossip. He just did not approve of writing about celebrities and all that shit. He said to me, "I'd rather you go write about all the new immigrants that are coming into New York. It used to be Italian, Irish, and Jews. Now it's Haitian, West Africans, and uh, Jamaican. Whatever the fuck." I said, "I don't want to do that. That's not what I do." Yeah, I want I want to write about Pam Anderson's tits. That's that's what I do, and uh, it was apparent I had to resign. I resigned, and just when I did that, the E Television Network in Los Angeles had called me and said, "We're interested in you hosting a show uh, called Mysteries and Scandals about you know dead celebrities and the, the scandalous lives they led." So I was making almost three hundred thousand dollars in New York, plus a lot of money on the side. And when, when I was resigned, when I resigned, I lost all that. And he was offering me $60,000. Yeah. So I went from making all that money to going to LA for 60 grand, 
and, and shooting a pilot that I hoped would work. If it didn't work, I don't know what my next move was. Mm. And it worked. And we got 13 episodes out of it. Then we got 26. Then we got 50-something. And after five years, we did like 180 shows. Right. So I got myself back up into people knowing me. And L.A. really got me, um, obviously, much more uh, acclaim and notoriety. Um, but I thought I could drop my gossip uh, moniker. I didn't want to be known as a gossip columnist anymore. I wanted to be out here as a TV host, as an actor. I wanted to do serious acting. And it was not my, my the people, my managers, my agents said, there's no way. You can't drop being gossip. That's who you are. I said, no, I'm done. Do not get me those jobs. And I mean, I even met with Harvey Levin from TMZ. Yeah. Way before TMZ. But I didn't want a part of it. I'm not saying I would have been on that show, but I didn't want a part of it. And um, it probably was a mistake, but I didn't want to do it. So in my line, it wasn't a mistake. I had to do something else. Anyhow, here I am uh, 15 years, 20 years since I got to L.A. And I'm back doing what it is I do, which is knowing the stories, knowing where the bodies are buried, telling the stories. But I'll tell you what happened. In, in the last 20 years in L.A., I might not have been writing gossip, but I've lived a life with a lot of celebrities, a lot of people in this town, people in the New York, people in showbiz. Uh, I've seen a lot. I dated a lot of people in the industry, befriended a lot of people, and suddenly I started to know a lot of things. So that's, that's what I do best. I just, uh, I tend to, put myself in situations where I can where I can really tell a great story. In other words, for the last 20 years, I've lived. I've just lived. I was never afraid to go, on a, go down a dark street. When everybody said no, I said yes. I did everything to make me nervous and uncomfortable and, 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 and out of my skin. And I think what you're hearing now on the show, whether it's drug addiction, uh, philandering, you know, just fucking your life up or doing tremendous things, meeting the world's best, coolest, funnest people. It, it all together makes for, uh, I hope, a show that's fascinating enough or interesting enough is a better word for people to listen for 45 minutes and, uh, and then move on. That's what I want to do. I like, I like being a, you know, I like being a storyteller and you can't be a storyteller unless you really live a life that lets you accumulate a lot of stories with a lot of people that are interesting. I think I've done that. Yeah, definitely. And are you still trying to live the life? Are you trying to just become that old man who sits in the rocking chair? Are you still at it? <laughs> I'll never be the young. I'll never be the old guy in the rocking chair. I because I love to write. Because I because I earn my living as a writer and as a talker. I'll do this. I'll work until I die. My last. I mean, I'll probably write about me being in the final hospital bed. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. fine with me. I'll never stop doing that. I, I'll always have something to say. So I'll never retire. I'll always write books or what have you. Um, but no, I, I definitely have a, a, a quieter life with my, my kids and my wife. Uh, but by the same token, when I do tend to go out, I do sit with people who uh, are Sylvester Stallone or, you know, I, I sit with people that, that most people wouldn't meet in five lifetimes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I do live a quieter life. I don't go out till four o'clock in the morning. I very rarely go out. But when I do... It's a meaningful night, and it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of people, and I'll bring back four or five stories for, for to tell down the road. Of course. Yeah, and I suppose, like, the podcast is fairly recent, so what kind mm. of lit the fire under your ass to kind of get back on the mic? Well, I, uh, I like I said, I, I, um, 
I just resigned myself to, to believing that it, whatever you think you are really doesn't mean shit. You are who the world says you are. The world says I'm the gossip columnist. The world says I'm the guy who talks about dead celebrities. I guess if you do something uh, in, in a way that people see it enough or do it well enough or loud enough, that's who you are. So I resigned myself to that. And I was meeting with a buddy of mine who was starting a podcast company, a guy I know since I'm 12 years old in Little League football. He lives about a mile away from me. He's done very well in life. He said, I'm starting a company to launch some podcasts. I said, that's what I want to do. I said, I'm tired of making everybody else's show better, and I don't have one. I've done a thousand radio shows where the people want me back every week because I'm so, I have so many great stories. I want to tell them myself. He exactly. says, let's, let's do it. Am I only getting my one shot, so? <laughs> What's that? Am I only getting my one chance, so, today? Is that it? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I just, uh, I, I, I'll always do it. And my, my buddy just said, uh, let, let, then let me hear your stories. He didn't know what I've been through the last 20 years. We, we kind of separated with our marriages and our kids and where we lived in America. And now we're a mile apart. And now we're together a lot. And now we're in it for each other his company, my show, and now a third buddy, my buddy Kenny, who I call Marv. Marv just put money in and invested into the company. So now it's the three of us again, just like we were in Little League football, you know, 44 years ago. We're together again, and it means something for all of us, which to me, uh, I don't want to sound corny, but this is the, this position right now, me, Mike, and Marv, is the most incredible position I've been in in my life. Just to be back with your boyhood friends and to do something meaningful as a trio when it used to be something as stupid as going fishing or, or playing ring and run or fucking making obscene phone calls to prank phone calls to people. Now we're doing something meaningful that all of us can, can prosper from. That means the world to me. Yeah, no, indeed, because uh, it's great when you actually meet your friends. I assume they're the type of buddies that you mightn't see for like 30 years and you see, and you just pick straight back up. It kind of sounds like Absolutely. That. Absolutely. You know, we, we all got married. Uh, we all married our first wives in 1986 within like three months of each other. We all went to each other's weddings and uh, me and Mike separated and married new women. Kenny stayed with the same woman for 30 some years. And now we've all, I don't know what makes the world come around again, but we're together again. Um, and yeah, we, 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 we just sat down last Sunday night. We tried to do a show together to make a show about the three of us and our, our childhood. But you'll probably never hear it. But we sat around reminiscing, and it was the greatest hour and a half. We talked about things that happened one night in 1975 <laughs> that we all remembered. We passed the yearbook around and told stories. It, yeah, it, every, every country's got, got, got the boys like that. The boys, the, the fellas, your, your mates, whatever you want to call them. That's who we are. We're the same as you be in Ireland or England or Africa. Same shit. Of course, definitely. And I suppose if you had any advice for someone, because I know uh, we're probably going over time, you're listening to my dulcet tones. Uh, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. If you had any advice for just anyone in the world, if you had a big billboard and you want to put some advice on, what would you say to people, just in general life in general? I would tell people to, to, to bite off more than you can chew and then chew it. To live... To live hard. Notice everything. Don't take anything for granted. And I'd also say, you know, do things out of your comfort zone. I don't mean jump out of an airplane. 
But if that's something you, you, you're petrified of and you think it might make you better or more interesting, then do it. Just get out of your skin. Talk to people you'd never talk to. And more than anything else, listen. Because the more your mouth is moving, you don't get any smarter. Keep your mouth shut and listen to people, and you'll be able to get so much out of it. I mean, these are just simple things that, uh, that, are, that are said all the time, but I don't think enough people practice it. Get out of your bubble and do things. Just do things, live life, have stories to tell, be interesting. But not everybody, not everybody is cut out to tell stories about walking through life. A lot of people like to keep it low-key. But either way, I would just say that I've had some health scares, and I had one recently two years ago where I had a case of pneumonia out of nowhere, and uh, I went to the hospital. My kidneys were failing. I was uh, anemic. Uh, I, I, you, you name it. The doctor said, if you waited another day or so, you, know, you weren't going to wake up. Your fucking lung is 60% blocked. I'm not, a, I'm not a smoker. Never smoked in my life. Doesn't matter. I caught pneumonia, and I kept going and moving and running around, and I almost died. And when you're on that hospital bed, I spent 30 days in the hospital. Lost 40 pounds. Having to see my kids every two days. And, you know, everything I could do to not cry because it can go like that. And the, the, the one thing that kept me happy or, or you know, living and not bitter was that I said to myself, if this is it, I've just lived the life of 10 men. I couldn't have lived it harder or better. Or more. I couldn't have had more fun. I'll miss my kids and my wife, but I, I would never do a thing differently. So in that respect, I'm happy I lived life. And I think everybody, if you find yourself in those positions with a health scare, you're going to wish you did things like I did. So mm-hmm. live, man. Just live. Don't sit in the house in front of a fucking computer. Don't play Fortnite six hours a day. You know, get out. Do stuff. No, that's absolutely some great advice. Sure. AJ, it's been an absolute pleasure. You've been more than generous with your time. I think I squeezed double the time out of you there. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, I think good, good listening there. And I, I hope you enjoyed chatting with me today because it's been an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you for coming on. I did. Thank you, bro. It was great. Don't be afraid. Do everything you want. And uh, where can people find you online then? Well, you can find me online on Twitter at RealAJBenza. Same thing for Instagram, RealAJBenza. Uh, and, of course, the show is same as a bitch. It's on iTunes, so you can Google it. I'm pretty available. You can find me anywhere. Perfect. Well, thanks again, AJ. It's been a blast. Thank you, brother. Talk to you later. Come back any time.